much like I'm losing. I'm losing my mind. I'm wasting my time. Susan, do you have to be confusing? I ask myself why you're saying goodbye. No other girl could ever take the place of you. That is Susan by the Buckinghams, and this is episode 178 of PZ's podcast entitled Without Which Not, sine qua non. And the cast is inspired by a reflection on the complete collapse and implosion of opinion in my own denomination in respect to a recent controversy at a seminary of the church which concerning which this podcast does not take sides but it is more interested in the um, remarkable shift of allegiances which an utterly ideological approach to a narrative or a story, as the Buddhists say, or a um, kind of projection of an idea or a conceptualization of an idea on facts which results when it is ideological, which it always is, because conceptualization always is ideological, in a, uh, a kind of... Um, 
defeat, which is so extreme as to bring to mind the midsection of the Buckingham's late 1960s hit, Susan, in which just for purely arbitrary reasons in the studio, they decided to sort of pull a Beatles, um, pull a Sgt. Pepper's effect, as in A Day in the Life. And um, what is normally just a nice, we might say trite, but I like it, of course, pop song about someone named Susan turns into a complete collapse two-thirds of the way through for no reason that has anything to do with the subject of the song and then kind of recapitulates uh, recapitulates itself uh, in a cheery manner towards the end. And I was thinking about that song in light of what appears to be a complete um, collapse uh, into partisan acrimony and... um, uh, hatred and kind of lynch mob um, spirit that has occurred. It's a very ancient phenomenon in connection with this seminary problem. And what um, I actually have a word of hope. I have a word of hope. I have a word of hope. And the word will come from actually in my world a very likely source, but possibly in your world a very unlikely source. But uh, What does it matter from which it comes? The word of hope is the shaft of light that is so powerfully needed. And what was so interesting about this recent problem is not the issue itself vis-a-vis faculty, board, or and or dean. The um, issue was the, the who became the villains over the social media because the irony is, and anyone who's really um, had to wrestle with church political uh, controversy since the year 2003 will recognize it uh, or should recognize it because it's it's in our skin, it's in our bones, it's in, our, it's in the, 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 the soil of the the controversy is that uh, people that were um, only very recently regarded as supreme uh, liberal voices and supreme liberal protagonists and supreme liberal partisans are now suddenly regarded, uh, have been outflanked so completely on the left that now they are regarded as white male patriarchal haters of various groups of one description or another, including half the human race. And and it's extraordinary. We used to uh, kid ourselves that Bishop Edward Salmon, who was squarely in the middle of uh, of uh, church opinion about 20 years ago in regard to all sorts of issues that became and are very significant, um, was increasingly um, being portrayed as someone further and further to the right, such that now many people would regard him as, as very far distant, um, zum Recht. And, um, and it's ironic because I lived through a time when Many of us thought he was dragging his feet and was much too concerned to keep uh, uh, people who are on the so-called left um, happy. And now he's regarded the other way. And what's happened in this situation about which I'm speaking is that people that I know personally and people whose records I am intimately acquainted with over the years have been the absolute hammer of the so-called schismatic dissonance, the absolute hammer, the Matthew Hopkins <laughs> of the of the right are now portrayed uh, by members of the left as being right wing. And it is it is really hilarious. Actually, it, what it really does is it, it brings to mind Thomas Carlyle and his book on the history of the French Revolution, where the left kept getting lefter and lefter and lefter until finally even Robespierre, who is the evil genius of the extreme left and the absolute utter Stalinist type, and that, that really is a, a legitimate uh, 
analog here, was finally portrayed as a reactionary and was himself guillotined. And what I find as I follow the opinion on the matters uh, in the seminary is that um, the, the, the ideology is so um, angular and so sharp that people that were are, were, and have been of a certain stripe in their views on things are now being portrayed as the absolute opposite of that, as absolute ogres. And uh, what's interesting is who's right or who's wrong is really not what's fascinating about it. What's fascinating is that the, the portrayals are shifting. And it has to do with a, a narrative that is held sacrosanct rather than the actual people. Because if you knew the people, if you even knew their recent history, uh, it would be very hard to portray them the way they are being portrayed by all sorts of people. Which leads me to believe that if this kind of thinking becomes ascendant, really ascendant, um, then, then everybody is, there's a vulgarism for it, everybody gets dot, dot, dot. Everybody is uh, basically a candidate for execution. And finally, even the, 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 the so-called last man standing becomes a candidate for suicide, if not execution by someone else. And as you know, in the French Revolution, what happened, it went so far to the left that Victor Hugo portrays it in the opening sections of Les Mis in talking about the extreme Jacobin who's dying that the bishop visits. And when it gets that far, you inevitably have a, the pendulum swings and you have Napoleon Bonaparte part coming in. You have an autocrat coming in. You have Mao Zedong coming in, and then, then the fur will fly, and then it's power without any ideological framework at all, really, but just power for its own sake. And that's really what I fear, and that's why Susan is such a great song, because it has really nothing to do with the content of the song, which is a dear, sweet pop minor classic. It has to do with a decision to just wreck everything. Well, what hope there is and I have decided to um, record this podcast far away from home because, uh, as I said, uh, in my temporary cave in Lake Tahoe, where I still see the ruins of the flying saucers from Mars attacks, but I am actually in Lake Tahoe, California. As I offer this podcast, it's in the hope of offering kind of a Winston Smith bit of hope from 1984 that someone might discover someday simply to interpret the wreckage of Susan in a way that might um, elucidate and possibly be of comfort to the many descendants of those who were killed in the collapse, both right, left, and center. And the hope actually comes from a short story that was written um, and published, actually anthologized in 1917 by my local hero. You know, we've heard about him, Irvin S. Cobb, the Kentucky, the Paducah, Kentucky, um, well, storyteller of the first order, who's largely and almost completely forgotten, though he was very, very hot in America in the 1930s, and as you know, provoked um, two-plus movies directed by John Ford, the great uh, American uh, film director. And his stories, while culturally tied into a post-Reconstruction um, uh, southern small town, the th universal themes of the stories very rapidly overpower some of the cultural dissonances, which we recognize fully. And he would recognize he was actually a liberal. Urban S. Cobb was a liberal on every subject. But in his radical and powerful 
parabolic stories, which almost are never interpreted explicitly. They are never, um, the moral is never underlined. These stories are um, universal insights and windows into the possibility of hope in the human condition. Zum Beispiel, um, his story, A Kiss for Kindness, has got to be one of the great antidotes to anti-Semitism written by an American. It has got to be A Kiss for Kindness, which happens to be in the same volume entitled Those Times and These, from 1917, a kiss for kindness is one of the uh, is a is, is a wonderful antidote, an elixir to any um, tendency in the Gentile human heart towards anti-Semitism. It's one of the great stories um, about that subject and the cure for it, um, really. Uh, that I've ever encountered. Uh, secondly, his story entitled A Cure for Lonesomeness. The Cure for Lonesomeness. I could do a podcast on that because it's the it's it's it's, it's a, a a powerful incarnation of the positive power of romantic love, the ennobling and uh, energizing power of romantic love. Uh, a man for a woman in this case who's in his 70s, late 70s. It's as powerful a story about romantic love as you can find. And there's no comment. It's all it's all just there. And Ford actually took a scene from it and um, used it with Will Rogers as the protagonist in his uh, movie Judge Priest. Now, that story, The Cure for Lonesomeness, occurs also in the same volume as the story that I want to speak about briefly today. And the story I'd like to speak briefly about today is the story that he, Cobb, um, penned concerning the early life in the Civil War of his favorite hero, Judge William Pittman Priest, who, by the way, figures in all the stories I've just mentioned. And William Pittman Priest is the local benign and very wise and very sharp and also very compassionate uh, and very universal figure of wisdom and, I might say, Christian philanthropic um, grace in the oeuvre of Irvinus Cobb. And in this story, which is entitled Ex Fighten Billy, Ex Fighten Billy, his early life is um, sketched in a very unusual way for present day readers because it turns out that Judge William Pittman Priest was, in fact, a kind of ad hoc. Um, uh, an enlisted man who later became a sergeant, who later became a major, who actually became a, a small officer. I can't remember the exact rank he has, but I have read the story twice recently to rekindle the memory for the cast because it struck me as being absolutely pertinent to the disastrous Susan-like catastrophe of the implosion that I watch in my own loved uh, and historic denomination, historic to me personally because I did, in fact, grow up in it. I also grew up in Christian science. At the same time, I was taken to Christian science Sunday school in the Sunday mornings by my mother, and five days a week from a very early age, I had Episcopal school chapel at a school for eight solid years and Episcopal courses on what we used to call sacred studies for years and years and years. So I had two, but nevertheless, the Episcopal church goes back to the earliest days, and my mother had... <coughs> Um, become an Episcopalian as a child, a teenager. Now, the um, ex-Fightin' Billy takes William Pittman Priest to the time when he was known as Fightin' Billy and when he fought in the, what would they call, Hell's Regulars or Hell's Hounds <clears throat> and were a cavalry regiment um, unit, um, not under Nathan Bedford Forrest, but of that kind. And they were Kentuckians who fought against the... Uh, 
the Yankees at Shiloh and any number of other engagements, and at the end of the conflict, uh, find themselves hightailing it down to Mexico. They are the they're trying to reach the um, last Confederate army. Um, is it Braxton Bragg? I don't think so. They're trying to reach the last Confederate army down in Texas through Louisiana to the southwest so they can perhaps fight another day. And these are the diehards. These are the last, uh, the Verwölfe, the last young. They're all young, of course. They, they joined up when they were 18, and now they're 22. They're all young men, and they're all trying to save uh, their cause and their face and their idea of themselves uh, and the cause for which they've given everything by fleeing the Yankees and uh, regrouping in some way. And they cross the Rio Grande and they get into Mexico where they have a number of very quite hilarious encounters because Cobb always throws a legitimate kind of humor. Some of his humor is way overdone, especially in his current stories, but his stories about Judge Priest where there's humor, the humor is always in second place to the really serious issue, which is always um, stated within the Southern uh, or African-American dialogue, but underneath it, the issue is serious. And the issue is, how are you going to deal with, with giving up? How are you going to deal with, with something when you've lost? And so they end up in Mexico, and they have some rather hilarious um, encounters, first with uh, liberals uh, who are against the Emperor Maximilian, and then with uh, troopers of Maximilian's army who are a little bit more well-organized and drilled. And They basically find no home in Mexico, and they, there's no possible way they can be in Mexico and really be at all true to anything they thought. There's no confederacy in utero hiding away in Mexico. So finally, Billy Priest, in this very, very canny manner, but he's a young Billy Priest, leads his unit back to Kentucky, but they have to cross the Rio Grande and surrender to the Yanks, and then they will have disabilities imposed on them. They'll probably be able to keep their fouling guns, maybe not, and they will swear allegiance to the USA, which of course is anathema in principle to them because they had thought they were fighting for a constitutional right. They thought they were fighting for something they believed in to the best of their ability, and then they... um canter back to Paducah and to Kentucky, and they rebuild their lives, but in a way that is based upon first an end to resistance in their own hearts, a beginning to believe that they can reconcile with their opponents, and finally find a home and a house in a united country, and which they do. And it's a very uplifting story. It's most powerful because it depicts with utter realism the actual state of mind of the last generation of the Confederate Army, the last units who were f trying to fight on after Grant uh, um, secured,ly <clears throat> surrendered Appomattox, and so it's, <clears throat> it's a very desperate feeling of those who fight on and who aren't going to who fight on out of principle, and then their gradual attrition, and then their final realization, which is not based upon some kind of moral concession, but rather a belief that that um, that hope lies in admitting the reality of their situation and that they may in fact find some grace on the other side of the Rio Grande and be able to sobered, yes, but their pride still intact to some extent, um, be able to start a new life in a United States of America. Now, this uh, is such a great story and it is so um, really good. I, I recommend it unconditionally. I recently... Uh, send it to a friend of mine who's a bishop in the Episcopal Church who 
is very much a mainstream liberal person and bishop in every form that you want to use that word, but he is uh, evinced a very um, real um, loving kindness and uh, Catholicity of approach towards uh, differences of opinion that has allowed um, a spirit to develop under him that is very good. Uh, people on the extreme left are very uncomfortable with him, but they shouldn't be because he's always, we used to think he was on the extreme left. That's so ironic. But he's actually a man who could allow a Billy Priest in his sort of scared um, uh, puppies uh, to cross the Rio Grande, you might say, come back into the church and find a home, an honored home, uh, and a, a uh, with a little con- sadder but wiser. And uh, most of the um, leaders in the Episcopal Church have not evinced that spirit at all. And as a result, you can see those who fought them, the 700 or so, maybe more, I think, actually deposed or clergy who have been deposed from their orders for reasons um, not respecting their moral standing, but rather for abandonment of the communion, these 700 old uh, acquaintances and many friends of mine who themselves allowed themselves to get angry and, as it were, fight a war, but when they might have been received in Lincoln-like fashion, Lincoln, Lincoln, Bo Lincoln, Banana, Fana, Fo, Finken, Fee, Fi, Mo, Minken, Lincoln, bless Shirley Clark, bless her, they couldn't come back because the feeling is too strong. And there's been a failure of the spirit, both in the vanquished and in the vanquisher. So there's been very little real reconciliation. Um, actual cases of ex-fighting billies returning to the fold based on a realistic acceptance of defeat coupled with contrition uh, and then uh, reflected in a warm and non-hostile and non-conditional but genuinely graceful and, if I may say, Christ-like welcome. Those cases have do exist. There are cases, and I've been um, seen several of them, thank God, but there are many, many cases in which the feeling is so strong on either side or on one side that there's no way for any kind of return. And so, um, dear friends, uh, read X Fightin' Billy. It's easy to read. You go on um, the internet and write in X Fightin' Billy, Irvin, I-R-V-I-N-S, Cobb, and then do Project Gutenberg, and Project Gutenberg will lead you to the book those times and these, and it's a very nice internet, you know, how Project Gutenberg is, it's just a, a script. But look at the first story, X Fightin' Billy, and after you read that and sort of lament for this message to be inculcated, I mean, you just wish that, that you know, at one of these bishops' meetings, um, um, what is it, that, you know, like Charles Dickens used to lecture across the United States by just reading a chapter in A Christmas Carol or a chapter of David Copperfield or something, you wish so much that uh, Irvin S. Cobb in a modern-day, you know, some modern-day person looking like Irvin S. Cobb, he was a very funny-looking chap, could sit and do an evening reading of X Fightin' Billy before the House of Bishops or this or that group, a conservative group, liberal group, whatever you want to know, and have that story read. Maybe have it read to each of the groups, X Fightin' Billy, and, you know, um, what is it, uh, Jesus... Uh, word was preached by St. Peter on the day of Pentecost and the, his listeners, which included a couple thousand people before the temple, were cut to the heart. What shall we do? What shall we do? They were cut to the heart. And you feel that if uh, X Fight and Billy could be read, it would really shine a light onto a hardness of heart on both sides. That would be just so surgically warm and kind. I was seeing a movie the other night called um, 
on borrowed time in which a man who's a terribly angry man, terribly angry old man and a cripple who has some very good qualities, nonetheless dies. And as he comes into heaven, he's able to stand up from his wheelchair and all his uh, cantankerousness kind of shades. It's done well by Lionel Barrymore, the actor. And he becomes just a nice guy and he, 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 he sheds his, his um, anger and his malice and his uh, resentments. And it, it's sort of shown in this old 1939 movie. And that's really what, what we're looking for and what ought to be and what hasn't been. And so I conclude this um, little uh, podcast, which I hope you'll receive. I'm having a slightly new way of having to put it up on the on the iTunes site, but I think we've worked out mainly how to do it. I hope you'll um, not only remember Susan, you know, our little church started out basically fine, a little locale, you know, a little Christianity, L-I-T-E, but it was all there incipiently, in, in, incipiently, the gospel is very deeply there, especially in the old prayer book and so forth, and the great articles of the church, there's a wonderful thing there, you might say intrinsically, if you look hard enough, the archaeology is sound, and um, the uh, and yet then, uh, like Susan, it's a good song, but then you, you somehow something in the human predicament which causes an arbitrary, complete collapse because there are inner storms underneath everybody, there are inward malices, hatreds, and resentments that just just are. Cacophonous. They just come out like nuclear bombs. And especially in men, I have to say, it's generally a male phenomenon, although I wouldn't. There are women who've gotten involved in this thing too who are pretty, pretty sharp. But nevertheless, whether it's a male, female trait, it's um, Susan collapses before the unconscious quaver of a, of a plutonium bomb and then finally comes together. Uh, Again, also arbitrarily and unrealistically. Now, if people could only hear um, uh, uh, latter-day Irvin S. Cobb uh, read his remarkable short story, X Fightin' Billy, I think there might be hope, and that's why I am hopeful. And we conclude with the um, very touching song by Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys from the Smile Sessions, which confirms the great old chestnut that uh, we're sitting on things from our earliest life that actually, if they could be ministered to, our later life would show tremendous fruit. Child is father of the man. Child, the child, father of the man. Walk, child, child, the child, father of the man. Walk, child, 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 the child, father of the man.
Bye.